Uh, I'll keep the COVID part, but maybe not the COVID part. Um, welcome back to Horse Talk with Doc. I am Dr. Yardley, and we have Dr. Timko with us today, yet again in the co-pilot's chair, and we are going to discuss colic yet again. Last time we left off with what we would do on the farm, talked about uh, making some informed consent before you came to the hospital, and we talked about some financing. If you're wondering what all this might cost, you should go back and listen to Colic Part 1 to learn about the costs of this. And again, these numbers are just based on what we have here in Ohio, not necessarily uh, across the country. So Dr. Timko, when you were working downstairs a lot, you would see all different age groups of horses that would come into the hospital. I feel like when we see an old horse or a broodmare, we're going to think about different types of colic. Why don't you just tell the listeners out there that are like maybe have a weanling and a broodmare, there'll be different types of colic that are more common, right? It doesn't necessarily mean because your weanling is a weanling is going to get this colic, but it's what we are thinking of holistically. Like if you're an obese human, we're probably thinking you have type 2 diabetes or a metabolic disease, but you might not. You might have a really good A1C, but that's kind of what we're thinking about for our animal. Kind of when you're working downstairs, what did you kind of surmise? Just like you mentioned, you know, you hear that signal and you hear the age group and you already kind of have a couple differentials at the top of your head based on, on the age group that you know is going to. Um, if you hear of a, a weanling coming into the hospital for colic, one of the first things that you start to kind of worry about is their deworming history. And if this weanling was recently dewormed, then one of the top reasons these guys get colic are due to what's called an ascarid impaction. And ascarids are roundworms. You're probably more familiar with those and your dogs and cats get them too. Weanlings that are dewormed and have a high load, those all kind of die off relatively quickly depending on the dewormer and can kind of block up the GI tract. So what would be a safer dewormer for them? So something more like fenbendazole, Panacure, that kind of kills the GI parasites a little bit slower than something like Quest, which is moxidectin. Yeah, or ivermectin mm-hmm. would be bad. Yeah. And ascarids live in the soil. You can't get rid of them. They can live in the yeah. soil for what, 10 years or something. And adult horses build up immunity to mm-hmm. them. Um, there was a study study in France where they look where they eat the horse. They looked at their liver at the abattoir, my favorite French word, <laughs> only word I can say. So the, the slaughterhouse for the horse. And uh, yeah, they had ascarid, um, like little cysts all in their liver because of the migration mm-hmm. lifestyle, right? They come from small intestine in the liver and they can find them in the liver where the immune system is. Little weanlings don't have that, so they track into them. These little weanlings will be coughing too, right? Because mm-hmm. the life cycle is the ascarids migrate to the liver into the lungs and the, then the little weanlings cough it up. So if you had a snotty nose full, it could be from anything. <laughs> Rhodococcus is more likely, but could be ascarids uh, and you deworm the thing and then got sick it, uh, impacts and colics are very common mm-hmm. um, in these guys and we used to have clients who'd be like well doc uh, I deworm my horse so we should give it some mineral oil have you heard that before yeah yeah and, and with these in theory that could help some but more keeping a you know an eye on the fecal egg counts and the worm loads of all the horses on the property and choosing the correct dewormer for yeah these guys. choosing the correct dewormer because the mineral oil is going to go down quickly and mm-hmm. these roundworms can still get stuck along the way what about the old brood mare that's going to pop out that weanling yeah <laughs> she's so. at huge risk those mares you know 
as you see them grow, they take up a lot of their GI tract and their abdomen, not their GI tract, but their abdomen with the foal. So then all of a sudden that foal is no longer in their abdomen and they have all of this extra room that they didn't have. Well, they tend to be more at risk for displacements of their colon that can go on to what we call a volvulus where it kind of spins around a little bit more and cuts off the blood supply to the colon. Those are bad. Yeah, those will be really, really painful and often be really bloated. So those horses, cutting on, we talked about before, cutting off blood supply, think about a heart attack where you don't have blood supply to the muscle of your heart, cutting off blood supply to the intestines, also mm -hmm. bad. They like to die. Yeah. And in surgery for these, you can untwist them. There's a lot of complications with that because mm -hmm. you have all that dead dying tissue that you've just released into the horse, which is gonna, under anesthesia, is gonna cause some really bad hypotension and probably some sepsis mm -hmm. elsewhere. And if you remove the colon, the colon is huge, probably a couple 50 gallon drums to remove that. We do remove colons, but it is a very tricky surgery uh, with complications because the horse does need its colon to hindgut mm -hmm. ferment. And you can't remove all of it either. Yeah, so they need some portion of it is is no longer viable and you can't exteriorize that then it's not going to be a, a fix either so knowing that your broodmare is potentially at risk for this within the first month or so of foaling and if that broodmare starts to get colicky and uncomfortable knowing that this is something serious and to take seriously and have your vet come out and take a look yeah this is not your broodmare is colicking this is not i give banamine and wait 12 mm -hmm. hours this is you call us immediately to come out there and in the literature, it also backs it up. In Kentucky, where they watch these broodmares very closely, they have very good success with volvulus because they send them to the hospital as soon as they colic, and they might even be twisted just 120, write it up as a volvulus mm -hmm. and how amazing they are in Kentucky. But that is not our population of horses here in Ohio. We're usually here four or five hours before the mare comes to us. And, nationally success rates are not as high as Kentucky's, but that is, again, time is of the essence, uh, like we talked about the last time. So these, these are serious colics mm -hmm. uh, that need to be addressed uh, immediately. And for those guys, if you have a, a broodmare post-foaling that's really painful, it's never wrong to just go ahead and come into the hospital versus waiting yeah. for your vet if they can't come out for two hours or so, just coming in if you have that option. Yeah, don't wait. Get them on the trailer, mm -hmm. get them going. All right, the old horse. What about your old horse? I know, Dr. Timko, you have an old horse. So I'm sure this is a worry before you go to bed every night. Yeah. So the old horse, among other issues that they might have, they are at risk for another type of colic that a horse that's maybe five-year-old we don't even think of for them. This one's called a strangulating lipoma. So they have kind of a, a buildup of fat within their abdominal cavity, which in of itself is fine. It can kind of twist around the intestine, the small intestine most likely, and cut off the blood supply to the small intestine. And there's no way to predict this. They can be fine in the morning and then extremely painful a few hours later, and that's because this might have happened. When I, was, uh, when I was in school, one of the pathologists described it as the yo-yo of death. Yeah. So they just, <laughs> they're just kind of dangling down, playing yo-yo with the fat, and then accidentally it wraps around some of the small intestine randomly. Away we go. We start yeah. cutting off blood supply, and the intestine starts to die. Mm -hmm. And the, so you, can't, you can't fix it medically no those if you have a really painful older horse and showing signs that it needs surgery 
that's the only way to fix this one is to take it to surgery. And again, time. The more intestine that dies, the more you have to take out, the worse the recovery is going to be. These old horses do well. We talked about that the last mm -hmm. time, um, but they, they do have to go to surgery to get to get that fixed. And I think I've read in the literature, fatter horses might be at slightly higher risk. Maybe yeah. it's kind of hard to tease that apart. They probably have more fatty lipomas in them. So the more fatty lipomas they have, the greater the risk one of them kind of goes rogue and <laughs> twists around the intestine. <laughs> goes, the fat goes rogue. <laughs> That should be the title of our episode. <laughs> and then the miniature horse, these are fun little critters. They get a fecal lift. Can you explain what a fecal lift is? Yeah, so these guys, I don't know exactly why they tend to be at higher risk for these, but they get kind of like this petrified, really hard, firm fecal ball that can get stuck in like their small colon and, and not be able to come through. And miniature horses get trochlobezeers also. Yeah, they like to eat things that they shouldn't yeah. and get kind of these foreign foreign body hair. Yeah, I think they self-groom each other yeah. because they are full of mites and lice and they itchy yeah. and they itch each other. I don't know if that's true. The alpaca also gets trochlobezeers. Mm -hmm. And humans that have OCD yeah. that eat their hair also get trochlobezeers, which is pretty disgusting. Uh, my wife can treat them. She's an OCD therapist. She can't, she can't treat the horses. Although, sometimes she probably could. Uh, she's heard enough conversations <laughs> yeah. that she'd be okay. Know what's going on. Yeah, if I wasn't around, she could help you. <laughs> We're making a decision tree. We bring the horse to the hospital. We, we looked at, we, we assessed it. We did our workup. So we passed the tube, rectaled it, ultrasounded it. Probably ran some blood work on it, did an abdominal synthesis, lactate. We have a full barrage of information. So now we're going to be at the decision tree of whether we should go to surgery or we should just kind of sit on it medically. We say sit on it medically because we're going to we're going to medically manage it or we're going to go to surgery. So what is that decision tree like? Like how do you talk to the owners about that? Yeah. So one is figuring out you know whether this horse even has a surgical option so kind of what we talked about last week is you know deciding for that horse do we spend the money for that horse to surgery if they do have a surgical option then it's going to be seeing how they respond to medical management if they're comfortable responding well we will continue on to try to treat them medically especially if we have diagnosed them with something like a large colon impaction or a minor displacement those usually can do well with supportive care. So how do you like to medically manage these horses? So these guys, when they're in the hospital, they're all gonna get an IV catheter and have some IV fluids. That's going to help with rehydration since they probably haven't been drinking very well. They're also gonna get a nasogastric tube placed and give oral fluids most of the time as long as they're able to tolerate it and move those oral fluids through without refluxing it back up. Yeah, so the new studies show that oral, oral hydration is probably better mm -hmm. for the GI tract than IV fluids. When we were hanging IV fluids, like what's the, how much, how many IV fluids, what volume does a mm -hmm. horse need per day? The average horse is going to need about 20 to 24 liters per day, about a liter an hour, and that's just their regular maintenance fluids versus trying to rehydrate them as well. So we'll often give them what we call like a 10 liter bolus, so 10 liters right off the bat to kind of help get them rehydrated and then follow up with 20 to 24 liters per day afterwards. Probably gonna give them a little hypertonic saline to like pick up their little, mm -hmm. pick yeah, them up a little. Yeah, depending on how dehydrated they are, if they really need that extra fluid support. But we would never give hypertonic saline and not follow it up with fluids. No, they'll just get more dehydrated. More dehydrated. <laughs> the cattle vets do that though. 
They give hyper. I don't because the cow's weird. They give hypertonic yeah. saline, and the cow just boluses down ninety gallons of water because she's cows thirsty. Are cows are different. At living. Yeah, cows <laughs> like to live. Horses do not. Twenty-four liters is six point three gallons. So we give six point three gallons of sterile lactator ringers, probably. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or normal cell R, mm -hmm. one of those two. That comes out to the farm and hangs ten liters and calls it good. That's could help the horse. That's a start, but a then start. you can't keep going with that extra 20 to 30 liters yeah. you might need. And the crystal leave the vascular system what within a couple hours, mm -hmm. so the horse so it doesn't really the horse is dehydrated no. again. And with those boluses, it helps, but a lot of times they'll just kind of urinate out yeah, extra we, and still be dehydrated. We bolus too much, well not too much. The, the system can only handle so much, so so that's why long kind of slow continuous rate infusion of fluids is better than just bolusing the horse fluids which is why when people are like can you run fluids on the farm dock yes i have the ability to do that and i have the expertise but it's not physiologically best for your animal mm -hmm. and and we're not going to leave fluids hanging on the farm there's a lot of risks associated with that the catheter could come could come out, the horse could bleed, or we've had you know reports of catheters coming off and the horse sucking air into its blood vessels, and then you get a, an air embolism, and then the horse dies. At least in the hospital, there's people here 24-7 checking these catheters, checking these fluids, and, and we're not going to miss something like that happening versus if we leave you with fluids on the farm, it's going to be hard to monitor that as closely. And the horse's stomach is, what, 10 to 12 liters? Mm -hmm. When we're giving oral fluids in the hospital, we are giving it couple every couple hours, maybe? Two to four hours. Two to four hours. We're letting the stomach kind of lease it into the small intestine. Yes, like for most of our medical management on the farm, we're going to give fluids, and that sometimes that's enough just to pull the horse back on the farm. But if these horses are severely dehydrated, we cannot give the horse enough fluid safely to like hydrate the horse all the way if it's severely, severely dehydrated or has a really large colon impaction. Yeah, we can't just give them more. Yeah. It doesn't, their stomach won't hold it. Stomach won't hold it. It will rupture or it'll come out the tube and it mm -hmm. just goes and they might aspirate. Okay, so we get a large colon impaction, small colon impactions. We see those in the winter time when the horses forget to drink. They don't, uh, or a lot of ice on top. I think mm -hmm. they're more common then. Again, you're gonna medically manage them probably the same way. Yeah, those are not great candidates to go to surgery, so some of these impactions we definitely like to try to treat medically first. Yeah, it, yeah, you don't want to cut the colon, a lot of bacteria out mm -hmm. there, and it's hard to pull the colon out of the horse, right? The small colon, mm -hmm. I think that's what the surgeons and tell us. Those ones tend to be associated with salmonella as well, so really? we'll send those ones into isolation if we come in with a small colon impaction. I did not know that. So, that's kind of a criteria to go to ISO for them. That's something I learned. So small colon impactions could have salmonella, mm -hmm. and salmonella causes diarrhea. It causes diarrhea, and some horses it also can cause them to become very systemically ill, just like if you were concerned that you might have gotten you know, food poisoning, salmonella can kind of do the same thing to the horse. I listened to a podcast that was extremely boring from the, from the CDC about salmonella food poisoning. Scary. Uh, it's scary. Uh, chicken thighs were the number one source of food poisoning. Yeah. yeah. Consider your raw chicken contaminated. Yeah, your raw chicken <laughs> is contaminated. Um, and they were looking at antibiotic resistance in it to cephalosporins. Yeah. There is some there's some antibiotic resistance. That is why when a horse does have salmonella in our hospital, it gets shipped to isolation mm -hmm. immediately. 
because we could not have the rest of the hospital be contaminated. Yeah. So, um, and when we send you guys home, I know you guys get nervous and I get a lot of calls. How do I isolate my horse? You, you put it on the far end of the property and you bleach in and out of that stall mm -hmm. because it is potentially... Consider them like your raw chicken. Yeah, your raw chicken. <laughs> raw chicken with a dose of COVID on it. <laughs> so you're going to get sick. Um, a displacement. So when they palpate it on the farm and we say, hey, I think she has a displacement or he has a displacement. So the colon, usually large colons are in the wrong position. They can go to the left side and get stuck up by the kidney. Nephrosplenic, they can go to the right side. Uh, right dorsal displacement they can do whatever they want really they drive around so we can man medically manage those sometimes yeah most of the time with some fluids and time and fasting they do pretty well it's when they move on to starting to twist and cut off that blood supply or get so gassed up that they're not going to go back into place that they need to go to surgery yeah so we're gonna in the nephrosplenic you can give it some phenylephrine maybe jog it around and get the the spleen to to shrink down with the phenylephrine which is an alpha 1 agonist and sometimes it works mm -hmm. I, I haven't yeah. had the best success how are yeah, you it's seen, I, you know i don't know just my personal experience mm -hmm. probably 50 to 60 percent of the time you yeah. can get it jogged off get it jogged off they do that a lot in kentucky because they don't mm -hmm. want to cut these little yearlings yeah yeah um my wife she is published on one equine paper out of florida and where they looked at phenylephrine she did the stats for them okay so she has she had for a while more equine papers mm -hmm. than i did published um she uh, but yeah they looked at but they they showed an older horses they had to be careful because yeah, you can uh cause the old spleen to bleed because they might have some hematomas yeah. on there that was what she was looking at so she had no idea what she was looking at she was just doing, <laughs> doing stats the good old stats She's definitely smarter than me. So ascarid impactions, those are probably gonna go to surgery. Probably, sometimes you can get lucky and get them to move through, but most of the time they, they're they stuck and need to go to surgery. Yeah, and they're usually, like we said, the ascarids are what's gonna cause them. And we have some great video of people milking out yeah. the ascarids that we show in class. So those little foals do pretty good, right? The old literature yeah. shows that little foals didn't do well with surgery because of adhesions. Adhesions are when the intestine gets stuck to the body wall. But I think more recently, uh, it looks like the literature is, is shifting towards that these foals do just as good throughout life. Or we Diarrhea talked about that we'll have to have a podcast on mm -hmm. diarrhea we can talk about all the all the causes of it and all the bacteria very expensive treatment too mm -hmm. and especially with all the side effects probably not going to cut a diarrhea no so those are going to be treated medically they will probably be uncomfortable and show colicking signs but they're going to be mostly medically managed and if we do cut one i don't know why we would but every once in a while that is a lot of work because we now turn one of our uh, ORs into usually isolation. isolation. We have to, uh, before any horse in our hospital, if it had salmonella, we have we actually uh, PCR and culture the stall a couple times and all the drains and everything to make sure there is no salmonella in that stall before we put another horse in it. So we're very careful um, with salmonella. So was, to get a surgery suite covered in salmonella is expensive. Go to surgical treatment and I just want to preface this that Dr. Timko and I are not surgeons. So we are going to dumb this down to the non-surgical level. So if you are a surgeon listening to this, we cannot tell you what suture you use to put the intestine back together. I can just tell you the overall arching themes of it. Strangulating lesions, so if we have a strangulating lipoma, uh, death yo-yo, 
What are we going to do there? Those ones are going to go to surgery. If the intestine has been compromised and has some dead intestine in there, then they have to resect that dead intestine out and put the two healthy pieces back together. Yeah, so anytime you take pieces of the horse out and hook it back mm -hmm. together, you're going to complications could go up mm -hmm. um, so it's not you know in, in easy surgery but we do it very commonly here mm -hmm. um, and these horses do pretty good yeah they yeah. might be more at risk for some complications instead rather than the horse that just needs their colon put back into the right place but um, we do this relatively commonly and these are the more expensive surgeries mm -hmm. these are the yeah. these are the twelve thousand yeah. dollar guys yeah volvulus so we talked about the brood mare we're gonna probably just twist her back into place if it's not super bad or we're gonna resect it. The resection is gonna be very expensive. Yeah, and yeah. these guys usually end up in the hospital for a while afterwards because they can get pretty sick after the fact. Yeah, yeah. having insurance on, your, on a nice brood mare to cover this surgery would be nice. Mm -hmm. Diaphragmatic hernia, we've had, I feel like every year one of our interns has one of these. They're yeah, supposed to be rare in the literature, but they're not. I feel like I've seen quite a few. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how do these, so what, these are crazy, right? Because usually the horse had some sort of traumatic Mm -hmm. incident like it ran into a wall flipped over backwards you may or, not even know because horses are horses outside yeah. and you might not know that they had a traumatic event um, and you might not have them call up due to this for years down the road so if they kind of have a tear or a break in their diaphragm intestines can kind of go into their thorax and come back out but then at some point it could get stuck up in the thorax and and not be able to come back out and strangulate and these are hard to fix. Hard to and that, not to, able to yeah. be fixed. <laughs> yeah, they're hard to fix because they, the horse, when it's in dorsal recumbency, so the horse is on its back, the surgeons have to, they're usually dorsal, so mm -hmm. the horse, surgeons are basically in the horse repairing it. Yeah, um, so they don't... They don't go well. These don't ones. go well. You might, if you, if your horse does have a diaphragmatic hernia, you might want to have a very serious conversation with your veterinarian. Euthanasia um, is usually, yeah, could be a better. The option. recommendation in these guys, unfortunately. Yeah. So those are kind of like the overarching themes of of this. We get a lot of questions about anesthesia, the risks mm -hmm. of anesthesia. I don't know. I we you and I both have done internships and. You've done a residency where we did some anesthesia. Very safe. I Statistically, mm -hmm. it's pretty good. Um, I think we, they said like 1% of horses have a fatal incident within uh, during anesthesia, but most of that, 92% of that was in recovery. Yeah. So what do we do here to keep these horses safe on the table? So here we have uh, the equivalent to nurse anesthetists. So we have special anesthesia techs that are going to be... Wait a minute. You said, and I just said, that we did anesthesia when we were in our internships. Is that correct? We did. We did, yeah. I, so I did have a nurse anesthetist working with me. Did you? No. No, yeah. So that is... <laughs> It was scary. Those are scary times. The anesthesia is like flying a plane. You're just waiting for it to crash. A lot of hospitals, and I think this is key for people to ask, who is doing my anesthesia? Mm -hmm. um, this is why we bring this up because, yeah, they didn't trust me when I was a new grad. That's fine. We had a nurse anesthetist. We had very expensive horses in Ocala. They wanted someone that knew what they were doing. But some hospitals just use their interns, and these are... Our interns at Ohio State are very smart, but they have not done millions and millions of cases, and that's why we use nurse anesthetists here with an anesthesiologist also. So mm -hmm. it is, it is different. Yeah, there. Are, 
when they're getting anesthesia here at OSU, they have um, large animal anesthesia technicians that have done this over and over and over again, and I would trust them wholly with my own horse under anesthesia. Yeah, we actually have them teach the students in anesthesia mm -hmm. labs just because they know the nuances of, of how to do it. That is why when you get your bill, anesthesia is expensive. Mm -hmm. Um, not because they're driving uh, Teslas, but because <laughs> all the equipment. So how do we monitor these horses under these, anesthesia? The second these horses get placed under anesthesia, they go ahead and start putting different types of monitors on them. So we place what's called an arterial line directly into one of the arteries, and that's going to help us measure their blood pressure throughout the entire procedure and be able to give them medications if their blood pressure is starting to drop and help maintain a, a good level of anesthesia. And why is blood pressure important? The horse does not tend to maintain their blood pressure well under anesthesia and they need adequate blood pressure to be able to pump that blood throughout their entire body which is pretty big and they have a lot of muscles that need blood supply and if that blood supply isn't going to the muscles at an adequate amount they might have issues in recovery with being able to stand yeah and the, their brain needs blood too yeah, yeah. everything needs the everything blood. <laughs> needs the blood low blood pressure very bad it's actually one of the reasons for uh, uh, anesthetic complications mm -hmm. is low blood pressure um, I think we monitor their electrolytes too in mm -hmm. surgery. Yeah, they're getting frequent blood samples taken to monitor sodium, potassium, calcium, all of those important electrolytes. And that, they have an ECG monitor hooked up to look at their heart rhythm too. Yeah, and those electrolytes make the heart beat. Mm -hmm. So when they're out of whack, the, the, the horse's heart rate will start doing different things. And we also, here at Ohio State, we ventilate them. Mm -hmm. Some hospitals don't ventilate. We can get into VQ mismatches, which is super fun. No one really cares about ventilation perfusion mismatch, but it is important. Basically, the blood has to go to the lungs and you have to have inflated lungs. So if you think about the horse on its back, all the intestines are leaning on the lungs and the lungs don't want to inflate. So we inflate the horse. Mm -hmm. We inflate the lungs ourselves with these huge kind of machines. During COVID, the uh, engineers from the Wexner were over here figuring out how many humans we could put on on one on <laughs> one horse ventilator when we were worried that ventilation was going to be the um, the limiting factor. Mm -hmm. And you know, science goes on. And we, so yeah, they, we have really huge uh, huge machines. Most of the time, we'll these horses will stay alive under mm -hmm. anesthesia. Yeah, very rarely unless they're really really sick prior to going under anesthesia will we have a anesthetic related. And we are also fluid rehydrating these horses as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. So as the horse is going to surgery, we are walking with bags of fluids because we want to pump this horse's blood volume back up as high as possible. So we're doing everything when the, as soon as your horse walks in to get it ready to have a, mm -hmm. an, a, a good anesthetic event. When the horses do have complications, it's usually when they wake up. Yeah, I mean... Everybody listening has seen horses and been around horses and knows that they are prey animals and can sometimes panic. And when they're waking up in a small room from anesthesia, they don't really know where they are, what's going on. So they tend to have these panic moments as they're getting up. People panic too when they wake yeah. up from anesthesia, but you can, you can tie talk, a person down. down. <laughs> yeah, or you just tie them down a little, I think. Yeah. So the horse, try to do as much as possible. So they're in a padded stall. Mm -hmm. or sometimes we put a blindfold on them, sometimes not, kind of depending mm -hmm. on the light. Do an, what we call an assisted recovery here at Ohio State. So we have 
a tail rope and a head rope. The horse kind of stands and it's kind of weak and wobbly. We can pull on a pulley system, and a lot of universities do this, and the horse will kind of, in private practices, mm -hmm. will um, will kind of give it some more stability to help the horse stand. And at least prevent them from kind of going in circles. Yeah, circles. It's, it's usually the big lunge that is mm -hmm. scary. This is where complications happen, and the horses that go to colic surgery versus horses that have orthopedic surgery, actually the risks are pretty similar. It's the length of surgery is what's really more uh, of, a, of a risk factor. All the horses that I've seen fracture a leg and anesthesia recovery have already had a broken leg. Yeah, it is a risk based on how they get up, but a lot of times they already have a, a limb that is affected and maybe that's where they're going to fracture it. So yeah. it could happen to any any limb on any horse getting up. So something that when you're making that decision, the surgeon or anesthetist will discuss this as a complication. Muscle damage mm -hmm. from being down too long. Yeah, being down on the one side versus the other or if their blood pressure tanks during anesthesia, they might have um, trouble using their muscles and helping them get up afterwards. Yeah, so carpentmental carp syndrome. Mm -hmm. So the blood supply gets stuck and is very painful for these horses. And then the last complication, I mean, there are a, a lot, um, not a lot, but these are major airway obstruction. So they mm -hmm. can't, their airway collapses. Mm -hmm. um, we can, uh, we do keep multiple tubes in them though. Mm -hmm. So they have their endotracheal tube. We also put a, usually a nasal, a nasal tube in there to keep mm -hmm. their sinuses open. So we do everything we can. I don't know what our risk here at Ohio State is, but I would say it's very low, probably lower than the published numbers. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it is a complication. It is very small, but it's something to be aware of. Mm -hmm. And it's sad for everyone after you've done an amazing surgery and the horse decides to be a horse. Mm -hmm. And that was when I was reading the literature for this, one of the uh, risk factors for, uh, for anesthesia complications, the first one listed was being a horse. So if you know your horse and it's good to let us know before anesthesia, if you have a horse that's a very excitable horse, mm -hmm. then we might tailor some drugs to kind of help bring that anxiety level down. Well, that's Shimko. It is uh, 33 minutes into this podcast and we have not gotten to complications yet. I don't think we have time today. Mm -hmm. um, we can talk about complications. That might be good. Next time we'll talk about complications and like go home, how quickly mm -hmm. you can ride your horse again, all those types of things. So I, I guess colic, the dirty C word, is going to be going to be a three-part series. And it doesn't still include diarrhea, so maybe a fourth-part series. We could talk about Potomac horse fever. So many things we could talk mm -hmm. about to educate the public. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll uh, see here. You guys can listen to us next week. Again, any questions, please uh, leave them at Doc Yardley. Uh, Facebook page. You can email us. And uh, if you like this podcast, share it with your friends. Hit the subscribe button. And let's uh, let everyone make informed decisions about colic.